Please remain standing as you're able for the reading of God's word. The text this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. I'll be reading in Spanish, and the English text will be on the screen as I read. Entonces dijo Dios, hagamos al hombre a nuestra imagen, conforme a nuestra semejanza. Eseñore en los peces del mar, en las aves de los cielos, en las bestias, en toda la tierra y en todo animal que se arrastra sobre la tierra. Y Dios creó al hombre a su imagen. A imagen de Dios lo creó, varón y hembra los creó. Y los bendijo Dios y les dijo, fructificad y multiplicaos, llenad la tierra y sojuzgadla, y señorea de los peces del mar, en las aves de los cielos, en todas las bestias que se mueven sobre la tierra. Y dijo Dios, he aquí os he dado toda planta que da semilla, que está sobre la, toda la tierra, y todo árbol en que hay fruto y que da semilla, os serán para comer. Y a toda bestia de la tierra, y a todas las aves de los cielos, y a todo lo que se arrastra sobre la tierra, en que hay vida, toda planta verde le será para comer. Y fue así. Y vio Dios todo lo que había hecho, y he aquí que era buena en gran manera. Y fue, tar y fue la tarde y la mañana el día sexto. This is God's word. Uh, we're starting a sermon series. We're just uh, the third Sunday into it on the book of Genesis. We'll be preaching through the book of Genesis. That will take us all the way to the month of June, uh, taking breaks here and there for Easter and other st uh, special uh, Sundays. But that's what we are focusing on right now is diving in uh, to this old Testament book of the Bible, the foundational book, the first book of the Bible. And we're still in Genesis 1, and we'll wrap that up today and even start the very beginning of Genesis 2. So before we get started, let's go ahead and pray together. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our sovereign King, creator of all things, we know that you continue to reign and that you're invested in your world because you are gathering a people in the name of Jesus, that are redeemed by his work on the cross and set free from sin and the power of death because of his glorious resurrection. Lord, we anticipate, Lord, that he will come again. And in the meantime, you've poured out your spirit to open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to what you have to say to be transformed by your word, to hold on to your promises and to know what is true about who we are as well as all of those around us, Lord, why you made human beings to exist and why we are valuable and precious in your sight. Lord, help us to see that now from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> saw a sign recently in the gym at one of my kids' basketball games that read this. It was just a sign that was on the side. It said, all people are people. That's what the sign said. Very simple message. All people are people. And because I'm a pastor and think theologically, philosophically about things, I paused and thought before the games got started, what is that sign trying to say? We see similar signs like that probably throughout our community and other schools. Why is that sign there? What is it trying to say? Well, it's trying to say that uh, every person, regardless of any differences in who we are, have equal dignity and worth. That's what the sign is trying to say. It means that each person deserves to be treated like a person, which means to be treated with respect, justice, and love. 
Well, maybe you're thinking, well, of course a pastor would think that deeply about a sign that's so simple. But I think it's remarkable to pause to say that I probably wouldn't be the only one that understood that was the point of the sign, maybe not as detailed as I laid it out. But if you saw a sign like that, you would probably say something similar, that was the point of the sign. And even if somebody wasn't particularly religious, you guys are religious folks, you showed up here, at least you're curious about the things of faith. But I would say that even somebody that doesn't have a religious background could look at a sign like that and say that's what the sign is getting at. And I think that's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that in our culture, in our society, that we can look at a sign like that and understand what it's mean and what it's trying to say. Now, of course, one of the reasons a sign like that might have to continue to be printed is because of the human tendency to treat others in a way that's degrading and dehumanizing. We need a reminder that all people are people. And that's why these top types of signs show up, uh, especially in instances in history when an entire group of human beings are not being treated like people. In fact, that sign reminded me of other historical instances of signs that were communicating a similar message. That sign in the gym reminded me of an example in 1968 Memphis, when a group of African-American men who worked in sanitation for the city organized a strike in response to such poor working conditions that workers were dying on the job. When they gathered for their protest, they held up signs that said this, I think I have a picture of it, I am a man. People are people. I am a man. And it was a powerful message. And it got a message through and a message that needed to re be reminded, but a message that is almost innate in our heart that we understand that every human being is valuable, worthy of respect, dignity, justice, and love. And they were telling a society that I am not being treated like a man, like a human being. And this is another example of why a sign like this is not only something that's powerful, but human beings need to remind one another that every human being, every person, is worthy of dignity, respect, and justice. So where did this recognized belief come from? Why can a simple sign like that in history, or one that we see maybe in a school, why does a simple sign like that work? Why does the appeal make sense? Is it just grounded in wishful thinking, or is it grounded in reality and truth and how God has ordered and created human beings to be in who we are? And of course, today we're going to look at the rest of Genesis 1. We've already started preaching through Genesis 1, and we're especially today going to look at the creation of mankind. And after a brief review of uh, some of the things that have happened in the previous days in the framework of Genesis 1, leading up to the creation of humankind, we're going to consider the foundational beliefs that flow out of the creation of human beings, especially as it relates not only to uh, our, our being and our nature of who we are, but also in things like human relationships and how beliefs about marriage and work also flow out of this foundational theology in the creation text of Genesis 1. And after considering that, we'll have some final thoughts on rest and why, uh, and why that is significant in the creation of count as well. All of these things are going to be getting at the main point of this portion of Genesis and is answering the question and reminding us, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a man, a woman, a person? 
And why is that so significant to continue to remind our hearts of those things? Let's review briefly first the, the previous part of Genesis that we've already covered. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So before there was anything, there was God. God has always existed and will always continue to exist. He has no beginning and no end. He's eternal and he is there. In the beginning, there's no struggle with other deities in this creation account. You don't have a sun god and a sea god. You have one God, the creator of all things. And then he speaks and creation happens. In days one to three, God forms time and air and sea and the dry land with plants. And then in days four through six, God fills these formed areas with sun, moon, and stars. And he fills the sky with birds, fills the water with sea creatures, and then he fills the land with animals. This framework is not only um, intentional in terms of what it's communicating, but even how it's communicating. The words, the framing of the creation narrative is telling us as readers that God created with order and purpose because how the creation story is told is in an orderly and purposeful way. We get to Genesis 1.31 and it says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God looks at everything he has made in all of creation, and God's evaluation of his creation is that it's good. And here at the end, it even says that it's very good. Like an artist creating a painting, he puts colors together and says, that's good, and that's good, oh, that's beautiful. And he finishes the painting, and he steps back, and he says, that is very good. God is pleased with his creation. That's his evaluation of all things. We also learn theologically from the beginning of Genesis 1 that God is sovereign and ruler over all creation. He didn't just make creation and then spins it like a top, and now he's uninvolved. That our continued existence means that God continues to sustain creation by the word of his power. And he even does that through, God the Father does that through his Son. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. So here God didn't create and then become hands off. He is our continued existence. And the continued existence of creation is due to the will of God who sustains all things by his powerful word. And the one thing that we called us all to do in light of this, what scripture calls us to do as we reflect on God as creator, this is what we learned a couple weeks ago, is that this all causes a response of worship in the listener's heart. When we look at God's handiwork, our response ought to be worship. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. You see the glories of creation and it points to the glory of of the creator. That's all review. That's what we had talked about in the beginning of Genesis 1, especially day one through about six and a half. And now we're getting at the point in the creation narrative where God is creating humankind. What does it mean to be human? A lot of that question is answered both in society, in our hearts, because of what we believe to be true about passages like this in Scripture. So let's review uh, this part of the sixth day. 
Genesis 1.26. Look at that with me. <clears throat> then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's curious here that God uh, is talked about in the us and the our pronoun. Let us and our do this task of creating mankind in God's image. And most likely what's happening here is this is an image of God as the king talking to his uh, royal council and his heavenly court. That's what the R is referring to, is not only God, but the all heavenly beings, as he's contemplating like a king in his royal court what he's going to do next. And Christians understandably also read this passage as revealing the complexity of God's nature in the very beginning, that this is God as Trinity. God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, created mankind in his image. Male and female, he created them. Now, in the original context of some of the original uh, listeners of this in the ancient Near East, they had different beliefs than what would be obvious to us nowadays. They would have read out an account like this if they didn't grow up in this community of faith, believing that other things, not all human beings, but other things, bared the image of gods. Statues, representations of the gods, that could be an image of God. And sometimes even that culture and different cultures would have believed that maybe a king, a queen, a significant powerful person would be uh, somebody that you could say is in the image of God. But what's so radical about the scriptures and the Old Testament, how it opens, is that it doesn't say that there's just a person or a group of people made in the image of God. What does it say in this passage? Every human being, every male, every female, every tongue, tribe, nation, bears God's image. There's not a special class of people in the scriptures that have God's image where everybody else doesn't have it. Every single person, without exception, has God's image. We believe that, but there are cultures where this would have been utterly shocking to say, and, the, and some of the cultures around the original readers would have understood that to be. In this theology, we're all kings and queens, because the king of kings has made us all in his image. Foundationally, our worth is from God, and it's given to every single human being. You are not an accidental occurrence from random events, but you are made by God to bear his image. And nothing can take that image away from you or any other person. Even in later parts of the scriptures, and we'll get to this in Genesis, Genesis 9, for example, uh, when sin enters the world, the image of God remains and is affirmed in the Old Testament. You are created in God's image. And since God gives this to every person without exception, then nothing in all of creation can take that from another human being. It's important to recognize and remember this reality because there's a human tendency to forget or demean it in certain groups of people. But here it declares it so clearly and without exception. Every human being bears the image of God. But what does exactly does that mean to be made in the image of God? 
One of the keys from the passage is the word likeness. That's a clue. In some sense, we're created to mirror God is what that word is getting at. You are also declaring the glory of God by your existence. You're bearing God's image, and that means that we are like him. We're sacred. We're set apart for his purposes and for his glory. We are related to him in some sense, even though we are beneath him and unlike him as created beings and not as the creator. In all of creation, human beings bear certain unique characteristics associated with being made in the image of God. We are, for example, rational beings who think and reason and pursue truth. We're moral beings who have the ability to discern right from wrong. We're social beings who are able to communicate, artistic beings who are able to create and appreciate beauty. We're relational beings who flourish in community, and we're also spiritual beings who are able to pursue God and worship him with body, soul, with all of who we are. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. It's who you are. It's essential to your being. It's something that can never be taken away, and every single human being has it. This reminds me of an exercise of an author named, I've mentioned him numerous times, but author uh, Andy Crouch talks about this thing that he does when he travels. He goes to airports, and he just looks around at the mass of people at airports. And airports is a great place to do this because it's just people from everywhere, traveling, uh, from sometimes all over the world, right? And, you, and he just looks around at airport and it has this exercise of looking at somebody intentionally and then saying, image of God, and moving to the next person in the airport and saying, image of God. And it's an exercise that he does to, to continue to remind himself of this theological truth that this diverse group of humanity all are unified in the same uh, characteristics of bearing the image of God. And I think this is an exercise that's good not to only do at airports, but anywhere. Ride the green line and look around and say, image of God, image of God, image of God with everyone that you see. Go into a coffee house, go to the Christmas market in downtown near Union Station and look around and do that. If you're a snotty urban dweller, Go to a small town bar, look around, and say, image of God, image of God, image of God. Don't worry, if I was preaching this in a rural church, I would have said the reverse uh, to get them to come into our city to go ahead and do that with us as well. I know many of you are going to uh, be visiting extended family members that maybe you don't get along with so well. Maybe it's good to be uh, at a dinner table during the holidays and look around and say, image of God, image of God image of God, because we all, without exception, bear his image. This practice not only helps us recognize what we share as human beings, we all have his image, but how God has intentionally created beautiful diversity in humanity. Again, Genesis 1.27 says that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Human beings are one but diverse. And here the diversity is described initially as male and female. All of creation declares that we are unified, yet different. This is something that comes up throughout Scripture if you see it. God is one God, but he's diverse in persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible has one divine author, yet many voices, one redemptive story, yet a diverse genre to tell the story of Scripture. 
A church body is one, with many, but with many unique parts and gifts, and from people from every tongue, tribe, and nation make up the one people of God. And here we have one humanity that is male and female, one humanity that is every tongue, tribe, and nation. We share in his image and unite in his purposes, but each of us is unique. And then when we come together as communities and societies, we create diverse and different cultures. And that, too, is a part of the doctrine of creation. We share in his image, but we are also utterly unique and beautifully diverse. And that comes from this doctrine as well. Another part of this theology that flows out of male and female, it also means that God makes human beings for relationships. If you go on to Genesis 2.18, it reminds us that it's not good for human beings to be alone. It's an affirmation that we're made for community, we're made for fellowship, love, and service. God, God didn't create a single male without any ability to enjoy relationships with other human beings. We have an ability to have friendships and colleagues and neighbors. We are made for community and not made in isolation. I think if one thing that we all taught collectively together or learned collectively as a society together in the pandemic is that it is not good for us to be alone for an extended period of time. We need community and human beings are made for relationships. Genesis 1.28 goes on to say that God blessed them, male and female, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Some foundational things come from this verse as well. And one of the foundational things that come from this verse is uh, what Christians believe about marriage. God created humanity in his image as male and female with the ability to be fruitful and to multiply. And so in this specific sense, it's not good for man to be alone. So there is a wedding in the beginning, especially we'll get to that in Genesis 2. In the beginning, there is love, a union between male and female, man and woman, who become husband and wife and then father and mother to any children their union of love produces. This shouldn't surprise us that marriage is a way to display God's image. Remember unity and diversity, as i already given you that framework. There's one humanity in male and female, and one flesh union, and this one flesh union who is husband and wife, and one family who is also father, mother, and children. And we see that here at the very beginning. We also see implications for humanity and work. Look at Genesis 28 to 29. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has uh, fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I will give every green plant for food. And it was so. Here that word bless comes up. This is a big reason I picked this book of the Bible after a sermon series on the theme of blessedness or to be blessed. It's a, a, this whole narrative of the whole story and the history of Genesis talks a lot about God's blessing. And here God blesses them. 
And it's a major theological theme in the book of Genesis. It's one of the reasons, again, that I picked the book. God gives humanity a happy and delightful life. That's why he wants us to exist in this world that he has made. He has given us purpose and a task. And again, be fruitful and increase in number can be applied specifically to marriage and procreation, but in a broader sense, it also speaks to God's desire to fill the earth as a way for the entire creation to be filled with his image and glory. God's purpose is not for one family to dwell in a single garden, but for humanity to grow in this diverse and global community. And we've all uh, have heard, now we've heard this uh, command that he says, he says, subdue the earth, rule over every living creature. Some translations say, have dominion. What does that mean? These commands are known as the cultural mandate of Scripture, that God created out of nothing, but then he organized orders and brings purpose to creation. And after he does that, he makes humanity in his image, and then he hands the project off to us, as it were. In a sense, now we are co-workers with God to make creation flourish. That is our job. In this sense, creation is a work in progress. God didn't make creation and simply say, keep it the way it is. He said, make a garden, make it beautiful, make it flourish and invite other people into that beauty. Landscape, grow the beauty into a space that other people can benefit from it. We are to care for not only creation, but also we are joining God in this task of of vocation and stewardship. We create, we build, we dream, and we bring creation to flourishing. And once we finish with that task, and we'll get to this a little bit later, we enter into the rest of enjoying God's work through us. Genesis 1.31 says that God, after all he did all this, saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God looked at everything that he made and said, very good, no mistakes. This is what I want. I didn't mess up. I want them to be here. I want them to exist. I want this world to be this way. Very good. And this is a good thing to pause and to ponder in your hearts, brothers and sisters. Because one thing, if you're like me, when you create things, it doesn't always go very good. We make mistakes. Uh, uh, one of the things that uh, I was reminded of uh, about this is just in preaching sermons, for example. One of the work of creation that I get to do is to take a blank piece of paper and generate it with a sermon that you know, didn't exist more than a week ago and to make something, to create something that's new. But unlike God, often when I create something, I also make mistakes. Uh, one of the things that I, I, uh, I did last Sunday uh, that I preach, um, and my, my wife is always good about talking about the mistakes that I make because uh, I want to grow as a preacher, but I talked about uh, Snicker salad uh, the last time. This is a, a glorious salad that I talked about that was at Thanksgiving potluck, uh, but mistakenly said that it was uh, made from grapes and uh, and, and Snickers and, and whipped cream instead of apples. And it messed up my creation, man. I, I had this great creative work of a sermon, and it wasn't very good. I mean, it was overall okay. But I had this mistake in it, right? And this is the thing I was thinking about. Like, when we create something, we have this common experience that, like, oh, we create something and we made a mistake. It's not perfect. 
We can't impute that framework to how God works, and especially in the very beginning when God created all things. It's important to always note as you think about your own existence and your own worth that God stepped back and said, very good, no mistakes, just as I want him or her to be. You deserve to be here because God wants you to be here, and he made mankind in his image and said, very good, didn't make a mistake, this is exactly what I wanted to happen. God doesn't make mistakes with us, and we have purpose for our existence of being here. Now, after the sixth day comes the seventh day, and this is what Genesis 2, 1 through 3 says about the seventh day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This day is very unique compared to the other six days. There's some unique things going on, like God doesn't, doesn't create anything on this day. Creation is completed. There's no mention of morning and evening. It's the only day that is blessed. Human beings are blessed, but this day now is blessed and set apart. Seventh day, that phrase is repeated three times, and there's no pairing with this day with other days, like the other six are kind of paired with one another. This one stands apart, and that's what the purpose of how uh, the, the seventh day is, is talked about, is that this day is set apart and different and more important than the others in a sense. Because on this day, God rested. When he didn't rest because he's like us as human beings, we get tired and we have limited capacities. That's why we have to rest. But he rested because he's finished. He completed his work. He's done and now he rested, meaning that he's now going to enjoy all that he has made. And with all that he has made, he also wants to glorify them and show his glory to them as well. It's like God built a home to enjoy with others, and now the project is finished, and now the party comes, and, the, and everybody comes in, and they just rest and enjoy one another's company. That is what's happening here at the end of creation, or in a sense, the beginning of it, uh, because now God is dwelling with his people, resting with them, and enjoying all that he has made. All of the Old Testament is modeled after this six-day plus seventh day of rest type of framework. We work six days and we rest. Rest in God and cease from striving. That's what Sabbath rest means in the Old Testament. It's not just about recharging. It's more than that. We as human beings, we strive all the time. We work, we work, we get busy. We got just endless thoughts going through our mind and we have tasks that never, ever seem to go away. There's always homework. There's always job. There's always more to do, more striving to do. And resting as human beings means that it's a day that you say, I'm not going to strive. I'm going to rest. And theologically, that means you're going to rest in God, his satisfaction uh, in you, his purposes for you, and rest in him and knowing him and his glory. That's what rest is. Rest is not just recharging, but rest is a theological category for worship. It's a reminder when human beings rest that what we're ultimately made for is worship. 
we not only intimidate God by working, which is a good thing, but also by resting and resting in who he is and his glory and reminding ourselves of why we exist and the purpose that we're called to, to glorify and enjoy him. Think about it this way. This is, this is a question I've asked in previous sermons before, but it's, bear, it's, it's worth bearing in mind again. Why did God create anything at all? Why did he even do this? There's two reasons why he didn't that we can rule out. One is not, it's not because he wasn't in control, that he's this out-of-control being, and it just kind of accidentally happened. When God does things, he does it according to his will. He intended to create. It wasn't a whoops. This is what God wanted to happen. But two... It's also because he wasn't lonely, right? That wasn't the other thing. He wasn't sitting around and was like, man, I'm really lonely. I need people to have community with. Creation didn't happen because God lacked something like love and companionship. He already had it. God is who he is. He's the one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He had already had full love and so full satisfaction of fellowship within himself as Trinity. So Why? Why did he even create in the first place? The scriptures would say because God willed it to happen according to his own counsel. You can go to Ephesians 1.11 that says that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And so creation happened because God decreed, purposed, and ordained it to happen. And it was happening according to his good pleasure. Since God is who he is, that's why we exist. There's an old theologian, Jonathan Edwards, that wrote this really dense essay called The End for Which God Created the World. Let me break it down for you because it's, a, it's some heavy lifting. But one of the things he does to illustrate who God is, especially in his act of creation and bringing human beings in fellowship with him, is that the only way he could really think about describing this is that God is like a fountain of light. He's a fountain of light, knowledge, beauty, holiness, joy, and happiness. And then as a fountain of light, he chooses to shine forth all those attributes like beams from a sun. That is who he is. That's his nature. He can't help but will himself to shine in his glory and to create. God is love. So he shines forth in love. And God is creator, so he's going to create because God is who he is. And that infinite fountain of life will shine forward. So your existence and the existence of this world is a willful act of God in which he chose to shine forth his glory for us to enjoy forever and ever and ever. This is a gift, brothers and sisters. Do you know that? This whole existence, our life, is a gift, a gift of grace. And so, on this day of rest, human beings pause because we need to. Pause from our activities and all our striving to rest in God's grace and love. I want to conclude by going to the Gospel of Mark and briefly remind us of the story in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus' disciples are walking through a grain field with the Lord, and it's on the Sabbath day, the day of rest. And while they're walking through the grain field, they're picking heads of grain as they walk. I sometimes do that, and my kids do that if we go on a walk and trails around there. If there's sticks to pick or vegetation to pick, just pick it as you're going along, and that's what the disciples are doing. And some religious leaders see them doing this, and they get really upset because it's breaking some religious laws and customs uh, about what's permissible to do on a day of rest of the Sabbath. 
This religious framework meant that you had to work hard, ironically, to rest, to work hard to make the Sabbath holy. They took rest seriously, and picking grain on the Sabbath they considered to be work. So these religious leaders condemned Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus responds in the story by referring to something else that happened in the Old Testament with a great king named David. In this Old Testament story where he takes bread from God's holy house, bread that is only supposed to be for religious leaders to eat. Yet King David takes this bread and feeds some hungry companions of him because they had need of food. And Jesus gives this story about David doing this unlawful act, so-called unlawful act, because he was accomplishing a greater purpose. And then Jesus concludes in Mark 2:27. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what's the point that Jesus is making here? He's saying that human beings did not create the Sabbath or this day of rest. God made it. And he made rest for us, for humanity. And these man-made laws that these religious leaders, these customs, were starting to get people away from the point of rest. They couldn't see it anymore because it just got all tangled up in legalism and rules. God made rest for us, to be blessed by it, not burdened by it, to be in communion with God. Rest exists for the refreshment in God's glory and to rest in who we are because of him and the knowledge of his love. And we need Christ in the scriptures to remind us what we are made for. Not everyone knows this in our world. It's the task of the church who know Christ and have been rescued by his love to go and share this good news with those who don't know it. Because human beings struggle with affirming the dignity and worth in other human beings. And even in themselves, we strive and we work and we're restless. And the ultimate rest that we are looking for is not a day off but to rest in who God made us to be, and that is human beings that know and love him and are loved by him with a love that is so radical that it would send his son to the cross to rescue us from our own sin and uh, oppression to death and to rescue us from those things by the power of his resurrection. And it's Jesus who invites us into the very rest of God saying in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest.